I didn't want to just be known for the double helix. You know, so before I made the discovery, no one thought I was going anywhere. And afterwards, I sort of went to nowhere. Nobel Prize winning geneticist James Watson today on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. In 1953, an earnest and ambitious 25-year-old scientist made a breakthrough discovery that would change the fields of medicine, science, even the law. Working alongside Francis Crick, Watson discovered the double helix structure of DNA. That breakthrough earned Watson and Crick the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 1962. Watson wrote a book called The Double Helix. I met James Watson in 2002 when he published another book called Genes, Girls, and Gamoff. That being a reference to George Gamoff, the Russian-born theoretical physicist who contributed to and then built on Watson and Crick's work. From the moment I met him, James Watson won me over with his warmth, his humanity, and his droll sense of humor. So here now, from 2002, James Watson. Yeah, I was trying to, you know, recreate what it was like in the mid-50s. Eisenhower was president. Joe McCarthy was around. Mm -hmm. uh, we really did worry about nuclear weapons and so on. You know, it was a very... Uh, um, it was a very different time. Yes, and scientists were more important then. Uh, Better reputation then? Well, they, you know, given the country radar and they'd helped to win the war mm -hmm. and Eisenhower liked them and mm -hmm. they were, you know, close in the government. Mm -hmm. They don't have that, you know, same importance. So uh, we felt we were important now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, we'll be important, you know, if we could, uh, you know, use the knowledge to uh, – that we've learned through uh, – studying DNA to cure cancer or mm -hmm. stop Alzheimer's or finally understand what mental disease is. So we've got some big objectives ahead. I, I, I must say, though, from everything that I've been reading about both this book and The Double Helix, it occurs to me people wanted a sequel to that book much sooner than 34 years. What took you so long? Uh, well, I got married. <laughs> and, right. and then I, I had written a textbook and... Uh, mm. Uh, I was just revising the textbook. <laughs> and then, uh, I guess the other thing is, you know, many of the people were alive, and uh, uh, one was closer to the events, and I like to tell stories as they really happened, <laughs> instead of, sort of leaving out one-third of the details, you know, I don't just tell the story. And... Uh, uh, you know, if you let a while pass, then it really isn't influencing. Uh, but then uh, in uh, in the middle 80s, uh, uh, it came up uh, the prospect of the Human Genome Project, and I got involved in promoting it, and then I had two jobs for a while. So it was uh, uh, occasionally uh, we'd go to London for a week or two, and uh, we had a house there, and I'd write a chapter. I started sort of with George Gamow, because he was uh, the reason I wrote the book, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, the letters. Mm -hmm. I thought they're unique enough to, uh, and he's sort of forgotten, but uh, 
As physicists go, he was more entertaining than most. <laughs> he said, truly. As, he the, wanted, as the letters will attest to, I will yes, say. Yes, <laughs> no, he, he wanted you to read his letter, you know. <laughs> and you did. Um, so uh, then I got fired from the Human Genome Project, and suddenly I only had one job instead of two full-time jobs. So <laughs> I thought, well, what can I do? And uh, I thought... Uh, Oxford had asked me to go there as a visiting professor. I thought, I'll go there and finally write this book, which, you know, it had many titles over the course of years. I first thought of calling it Calculated Madness. And then I thought, well, I'll call it Jim's Jitters. Cause, <laughs> you know, but, you know, Jim's Jitters doesn't, uh, publisher probably wouldn't like. And uh, Calculated Madness opened me up to the fact that it wasn't calculated. I'd always been mad. And, you know, you didn't know which way to go. And uh, uh, then uh, 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 someone suggested I call it The Morning After. <laughs> which, you know, would suggest a hangover, <laughs> which it sort of was, you know, you have this great moment of virtual ecstasy, and then uh, you get bored with the ecstasy, and you got to do something else, and uh, that's not always, you know, you're in a hangover, uh, but that probably wasn't the right title, and I thought... George Gamow would like three G's, so Jeans, Girls, and Gamow was the sort of thing that he would go around saying. Well, I, I, I'm surprised at the number of people who profess to be surprised that a healthy young man of 25 is, is as interested in girls as he is in jeans. I mean, that, that seems quite natural to me. Yeah, and... Uh I think they wanted me to, you know, act as if I was 45 instead of 25 or, you know, act what I'm, you know, like I am now. You know, if I, even though it was 50 years ago, I'm supposed to have a mature tone. But, uh, a, sci a scientist, uh, yes. But uh, I had these, uh, what made the book possible. I went to Oxford and found it was hard to write the book. I couldn't remember it. <laughs> you know, I had the Gamow letters, mm -hmm. but exactly, you know, what I did over a given week or uh, uh, I didn't remember. And I knew there was some science in there. And uh, the girl whose, you know, existence dominated my thoughts, uh, I had... The sneaking suspicion, she probably had my letters, and I'd write the book, and come out, and then the letters would be there, and <laughs> she would see that it was all work of fiction. <laughs> uh, but then uh, she heard that uh, uh, I was writing something, and she wrote me a nice letter and said, look, I kept your 68 letters, and would you like them? <laughs> of course... <laughs> I went back and rewrote all the stuff I'd written before, which wasn't very satisfactory, and thought, uh, no one can, you know, accuse me now of making it up because I can go to the left. <laughs> uh, I mean, you have to make up something for a sentence. You have to say you got up or, you know, you, you somehow got to dinner and met so-and-so, but, uh, you know, the basic facts, I think, are... Uh, <laughs> Right. Uh, Dick Feynman, in the books that he wrote or had other people write about him, he writes about me, and I know it's inaccurate. <laughs> <laughs> you know, his memory, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. So, well, he can write his books. You can write your books. No, but, uh, of course, I mentioned Dick. Mm -hmm. uh, but in some cases, uh, I'm just reporting that, you know, he came over to the room because I have it in a letter, and that's how I can say Feynman came over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
<laughs> which I couldn't have said. You know, I could have said, well, Feynman was interested and we saw him, but I couldn't make it. Uh, we showed this idea to him and he didn't believe it. Mm. You know, that's at that level of fact. Uh, you needed to learn. And I, I'm curious. Over the years, have you met people who assumed when they when they when they hear that your work was you know with the, the 1953 the discovery of the uh, of the structure of DNA that you didn't win the Nobel Prize immediately or the, did they did they expect that you got the prize the next morning or yeah sort of <clears throat> and I say that uh, uh, the reason people were interested in is we proposed a way in which uh, DNA could be copied. And uh, it involved the two strands separating. That was only shown five years later at Caltech by Matt Messelson and Frank Stahl in 1958. And so then it was four years to the Nobel Prize mm -hmm. because until then they could say, well, pretty molecule, but it doesn't behave that way. And you haven't really solved this problem. When this other data came out, yeah, it was right. <laughs> so, you know, a very obvious guess turned out, you know, it has not escaped our notice, this sentence we wrote. <laughs> it could do it. was right. <laughs> but but I, it takes that long to figure out if, if a discovery really is as momentous as it appears to be at, at you know on the day you make it. Yes, we would have thought it was really... You know, fate was against you. If you had a molecule of that structure and you didn't use its structure in mm -hmm. its replication in this obvious way, because people have been speculating the gene has to be copied this way. And then it had a molecule which was, uh, you know, an image and its complement, and they were all there. And uh, uh, though he effectively forgot about it, Linus Pauling, about four years before, he said, this is the way replicate replication would occur. So it was so that uh, one day, you know, we went from nothing, you know, we had nothing at nine in the morning and it's, you know, by the time we went to lunch, we had the structure. Coming up right after this short break, James Watson remembers his awkward meeting with a Hollywood superstar. More now of my 2002 interview with James Watson. And all this, not as you said a moment ago, not at, at, at the great wizened age of 45 or 50 or 60, but at 25. I mean, how, you must, you must, how did you keep from getting such a big head? Well, because, uh, you know, I immediately got stuck on the next step. <laughs> you know, that uh, you could only be, uh, even with the double helix, you could only be happy about six months, you know, <laughs> which is give about six talks. Mm. And then you were bored with your talk. You wanted something <laughs> new to say. And uh, so, so getting bored is a very, you know, that something doesn't please you too long mm -hmm. is the, is necessary for human progress. Otherwise, you do something and you say how pretty it is, and it would stay pretty the rest of your life and you wouldn't do anything else. But also, as you described the 50s, uh, this, this is not a time to rest on your laurels. No, but, you know, it was basically... Uh, I didn't want to just be known for the double helix. You know, so young that they could write the story of... Uh, I made this big discovery, and, and you know, before I made the discovery, no one thought I was going anywhere, and afterwards, I certainly know went nowhere. You know, it was, so uh, I only began to relax, 
just before I got the Nobel Prize. The, the science that was being done by my group at Harvard was very interesting. And I thought, well, it's about as good as being done across the Atlantic and uh, where I used to work. So, you know, I didn't need Francis to stay alive. On the other hand, I got a very good collaborator at Harvard. So mm-hmm. you can say <laughs> this new collaborator kept me alive. So, 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 which is which is easier: the search for an elusive piece of scientific knowledge, or the the search for the perfect mate? Depends. You know, the scientific knowledge could be even worse. You know, you could really pick an objective <laughs> that is just never going to come out in your lifetime. Just like you could search for the perfect girl and it never comes. Mm-hmm. So. You know, what's a perfect girl? You know, just someone that you feel content with. What more can you say? uh, (laughs) You know, people said, you know, I was 25 and I shouldn't have wanted a girl who was 17 about to go off to college, you know? (laughs) Yeah, bad choice. (laughs) But, you know, you don't have any freedom. You, you, uh, uh, falling in love, you don't have any freedom whatsoever. It, it happens. And, mm-hmm. you know, the only thing that can knock you out of being in love generally is finding someone else that you could also be in love with. <laughs> but in the absence of that, mm-hmm. uh, the brain just concentrates. Well, d- does winning a Nobel Prize make you a, a, a chick magnet? Slightly, but not that much. <laughs> I mean, you know, you know. Again, you think the only person who, you know, anyone who'd want you for the Nobel Prize, you don't want. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, because yeah, yeah, yeah. It's more or less, you know, you're not capable. You know, you know, you want a good life. You don't really like a person and you know unless you like a person it's hard to want to stay near them but but i'm i'm guessing that that as great as achievements as as you've made if they didn't that there was something missing unless you had somebody to share it with i mean oh, sure. so go home to in the evening and say honey guess what i did today yeah or you know uh, above caltech where you know these nice mountains and and walking by yourself is and walking with a man is boring. <laughs> you know, you can talk science, and sometimes you do it. You know, generally when you come down, you know, it's too hard when you're walking. But, you know, I remember coming down from Mount Wilson and talking science. But, uh, you know, it's a second best. <laughs> That's right. Now you do tell the story in the book. I mean, just you told it in passing of the of meeting at you were at Salvador Dali's, and this beautiful young woman comes up to you and introduces. She's anxious to meet the man who discovered DNA, and you I don't know the vaguest notion of who this was. Apparently, yes. And uh, I thought she looked like an angel, and I thought she was fifteen, and I was thirty-seven, and I thought, oh boy, I've been. Burned by young girls, stay away from that one. And she disappeared halfway through before dessert. And, you know, there she was gone. She was catching a plane to Los Angeles. And how did I know she was on her way to be with Sinatra? (laughs) What was that? Mia something? Yeah. Mia. (laughs) But she was, you know. Dowie had taught her how to say deoxyribonucleic acid. And, you know, he rehearsed the whole thing, you know, to to have fun of suddenly seeing me have a girl coming in. You know, I thought, gee, it's just like Aubrey Hepburn and Roman Holiday, you know, that same (laughs) perfect voice. Uh, I met her. It was... Well, 15 years later on Martha's Vineyard, there she was. I said, well, we met with Dowie, and she said, oh, 
you're the scientist. And I think I was the <laughs> only scientist she met in her life, you know. And, uh, but, uh, yeah, I'm glad she went off. I mean, given, you know, <laughs> she, uh, I don't think she and I really had common values. Um, <laughs> might not have worked out quite as well. As no. <laughs> well, the reader maybe I don't want to give anything away because the book reads almost like a good novel, but will the reader be surprised, do you think, to find who you ended up with and how you ended up? Probably. You know, I ended up with a girl that... Uh, that was awfully sexy. Even prettier than the first girl. <laughs> and uh, uh, who it turned out, you know, that we were very compatible and liked the same people. You know, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. And uh, uh, you know, we liked. It. She likes architecture. And, you know, mm -hmm. we we generally agree on what sort of paintings we'd like in our house. That sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but you know, I had a long. You know, period of time when, uh, you know, I, I was despairing. I was getting too old, you know, to, uh, <coughs> to your, look your, attractive. Your biological clock was ticking? I felt it. <laughs> and then, of course, uh, I, had, <laughs> I could really enjoy myself. <laughs> well, you've got a lot of years ahead of you. I was 73. You're a young man. Uh, I think the secret is the fact that I've had a, you know, had a wife of 20 years younger. That has helped, yeah. you know. Just you know, uh, you got to be like her, not the other way around. She remembers who the Beatles were. <laughs> yeah, well, it was the first music group I liked. I couldn't stand <laughs> Elvis Presley. I didn't like you know Bing Crosby, all that. And suddenly the Beatles arrived, and the Rolling Stones, and mm -hmm. there was great music. And <laughs> from about 1965 out, it was wonderful yep. music. That's true. But before that, I thought, you know, <laughs> I was a classical buff. You know? Oh. But now I turn on, uh, you know, the pop stations more than the classical and enjoy them. Uh, also, before we close, do you have a website? No, I'm afraid of a website. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because, uh, uh, oh, there's a lab website. Yeah, there's a lot. Of, I meant to say I don't have an email. Oh. I, I, <laughs> No, I don't want. <laughs> You're wise not to have email. That's that could be that could be a nuisance. Yeah, because every time you don't answer something, you feel guilty. Mm -hmm. And best way, don't see it. That's, that's right. <laughs> I have enough reasons for you know feeling I'm letting people down rather than people who spontaneously want me to you know help them with a school project or. Oh, do you get that a lot? Not too much, in part because I don't. You don't have, have emails. <laughs> You are wiser than I even thought. <laughs> James Watson celebrated his 93rd birthday last week, and we're still not sure if he ever got an email account. And you can find easy Amazon links to James Watson's books at our website, heardeverything.com. Are you new to Now I've Heard Everything? Well, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. You can find us on all major podcast platforms. But you can also find all of our past episodes, hundreds of them, at our website, heardeverything.com. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, the Oscar, Golden Globe, and Emmy Award-winning actress who once played her own twin cousin on TV, my 1988 interview with Patty Duke. Miracle Worker, the counterpoint to the, the negative stuff that was going on in my personal life at the time, was that here, every night, I got to beat up a grown-up. And a whole audience filled with grown-ups applauded. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything.
I'm Bill Thompson. 